What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Um, I got a lot of stuff today. Trump agrees with Joe Biden on something very important. I'm going to lead with that story. Uh, Politico, regardless of what you think of Andrew Yang, because I know there's very, um, there's very aggressive disagreement on Andrew Yang, but regardless of what you think of him, Politico launched one of the dumbest smear attacks I've ever seen in my life, and I can't wait to dissect that with you. Um, I got an update on the Afghanistan war situation. There's uh, many different angles to dive into. We have uh, Joe Manchin getting his way yet again. One of the key Russiagate stories has totally fallen apart. I got you a COVID update and a vaccine update. I have uh, George W. Bush somehow made it into the show today. One American News Network was exposed. Uh, a lot of stuff. I'm, I think I'm even going to add some, some stories on the fly here that caught my eye that I really want to go into. Um, namely, the Kirsten Cinema one. The Kirsten Cinema one. So we'll talk about that. Oh, now I got another one. I got, oh, that's, oh, I'm sorry. That's old. Never mind. The Dwayne Johnson is teasing a run for office. So that's, that's interesting. Anyway. All right. Without further ado, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, I'm going to do that with the Trump agreeing with Biden story. This is fun. Here we go. So this is something that's perhaps a little bit surprising for a number of reasons, but it appears like former president Donald Trump just agreed with Joe Biden on a crucial issue. So take a look. This is from the New York Post. Former President Donald Trump blasted President Biden for pushing the deadline to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan to September 11th. I don't agree with that framing, as you'll see in a second. Saying it, quote, should remain a day of reflection and remembrance. Trump argued in a statement Sunday that the U.S. can and should pull out the final 2,500 troops ahead of the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Quote, September 11th represents a very sad event and period for our country and should remain a day of reflection and remembrance, honoring those great souls we lost, he said. Here's the, the key part. Quote, getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do. Trump urged Biden to keep as close as possible to his own goal of getting the troops out on May 1st. I made early withdrawal possible by already pulling much of our billions of dollars of equipment out and, more importantly, reducing our military presence to less than 2,000 troops from the 16,000 level that was there. Okay, so there's a lot to say about this. Um, first of all, Trump is, he's already misstating it because his plan, as I've already outlined for all of you, is not, was not to remove literally all of the troops by May 1st. The plan was basically to remove all the combat troops, the so-called boots on the ground, by May 1st, and there would still be a presence of thousands of U.S. personnel on the ground. So that's why I blasted him. It wasn't really a withdrawal. It was a withdrawal in the same way that Obama withdrew from Iraq, which was to take out the combat troops but still leave some boots on the ground, and then inevitably he sent more people back in. So what you've had under three administrations now is this yo-yoing of the troop levels. George W. Bush went in. There was no pretense even about leaving. He just kept us there, no question, his entire time in office. Obama came in. He campaigned on getting out of Afghanistan. He didn't do that. Oh, I'm sorry. He campaigned on getting out of Iraq. 
And he didn't do that except temporarily, but it wasn't a full withdrawal. Then he sent troops right back in. Um, and Obama did the surge in Afghanistan, which is the polar opposite of getting out. He sent way more troops to Afghanistan. Now, in the case of Trump, Trump the entire time was talking about getting out of the Middle East, getting out of Iraq, getting out of Afghanistan. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. The closest he came was this deal, which was to get the boots on the ground troops out by May 1st, but it still leaves a presence of thousands. So I don't give him credit for that. I don't think that's a real withdrawal. And by the same token, if Biden gets out by not actually getting out and keeping some boots on the ground, keeping some U.S. personnel there, I'm not going to give him credit for that. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, But so he's misstating it. But the crucial part is, again, I want to read this because this is amazing to me. Getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do. That's Donald Trump giving Joe Biden credit on something. Even though he's, you know, he's saying, oh, how dare you push the date back? How dare you do it on 9-11? That's so disrespectful, whatever, blah, blah, blah. This is Donald Trump struggling to come up with something to attack Joe Biden on. So basically, even in his condemnation of Joe Biden, he's like, and by the way, this is a positive thing to do. This is the right thing to do, and you should do it. That's incredible. That's incredible. So, I mean, there's a number of potential takeaways from this. It depends how much you want to read between the lines. But one reading of this is, just like we've talked about a number of times, it really does appear like Trump's instinct was, I do want to get out of the Middle East, but every time he went to go do it, like he says, there'd be somebody right out of central casting, a general right out of central casting, would come in wearing his uniform and say, Mr. President, we can't do it for reasons X, Y, and Z. And Trump would be like, okay, you know better than me. I guess I'll defer to your wisdom. And that's what kept happening. But guess what? That's what happened in Vietnam as well. We stayed there way longer than we should have. And all the generals said we need more time and more money. And every president gave them more time and more money. And then at the end, it was a mess. And we ended up leaving. And we didn't accomplish accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. Even though, again, they don't even bother to define victory at this point. So I think his instinct really was, I want to get out. But he was convinced by intelligence agencies and the Pentagon and generals and basically, not, I don't mean this in a conspiratorial sense, but the deep state, the people who are there from administration to administration, they convinced him, no, you can't get out. And he kind of went along with them. And so now, that's the other point. He might actually be having like a, a moment here where he's like, damn it, why didn't I do exactly what it says Biden's going to do? Now, again, we don't know for sure if Biden's actually going to get out, and I got more stories on that coming up, but... If Biden actually gets out, it really does appear like Donald Trump is like, God damn it. See, now Biden's going to get the credit for this because Trump knows that pulling out of Afghanistan is incredibly popular. All the polls show it. Biden's going to get credit for this. Why didn't I do it? Which leads to my biggest point on this, which is, yes, Don, what the hell? You're giving him credit. You're saying it's the right thing to do. You had the opportunity. You didn't have to, you didn't even have to make a deal. That's another thing that Biden said, which we hope he follows through on, but he said, Um, There are no conditions on the ground that have to be met. We're getting out no matter what. It's an unconditional withdrawal. You could have done that, Don. You could have done that. Instead, I love this idea. He negotiated with the Taliban. Imagine if a Democratic president negotiated with the Taliban, what Republicans would say. Oh, my God, you're working with the Taliban. You're holding their hand, and they're on the side of al-Qaeda, and they're terrorists, and they're evil, and you want to work with evil? You can't work with evil. This is like appeasing Hitler. How could you do That's what they would say. But Trump worked with him, and they didn't say anything. But yes, Don, you didn't have to negotiate with the Taliban. You didn't have to have a timeline for withdrawal. 
You could have just pulled all the troops out and done it right now, and over, you, know, you could override the generals. You're the commander-in-chief. You're the president of the United States. But he didn't do it. But he didn't do it. So instead, now Biden does it, and he's like, okay, all right, even though I don't know about the time and everything. But, I mean, it is, what, what am I going to say? It is, the positive, it is a positive thing to do, and it's the right thing to do. By the way, Lindsey Graham came out after he saw Trump's statement on this, and Lindsey Graham didn't take the headlines at their word. He read what Trump actually said. And so Lindsey Graham read it actually in a similar way to how I'm reading this, which is he's, really large, he's largely agreeing with Biden and giving him credit. And so Lindsey Graham launched an attack against Trump. It was like, oh, I, with all due respect to the former president, it's not a good thing to give terrorists safe haven to attack the United States of America. As if that's, like, as if that's what's happening here. What's happening here is we've been at a, an illegal war for 20 years. That's what's happening. And we've wasted so much time, so much money, so many lives, U.S. soldiers' lives and civilian lives over there. We have the Afghanistan papers that came out, which showed immense, tremendous corruption and a totally aimless war. And Lindsey Graham, I want you to overlook all that, because something, something, 9-11, something, something, bad guys and terrorists. I mean, for the love of God, man, if you want to stop terrorists from existing, attacking us, and all that, don't arm them and fund them and support them, as we've been doing. We give money and weapons to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia arms jihadists on the ground in Yemen who are fighting the Shia Houthis that are in the government. We give you know, arms and funding to al-Nusra on the ground in Syria. That's an al-Qaeda affiliate. If you want terrorism to stop, stop funding it and arming them. That's what you do. But they're not going to do that because that, Lindsey Graham is totally in favor of all those things, but he wants to pretend like the real problem is if we pull out of Afghanistan, then it's going to lead to the attacks against us. No, if anything, us being there led to a bigger threat of attacks against us. And this isn't me speaking. This is you know, the more honest elements of our intelligence agency speaking because of this thing called blowback, unintended consequences of an interventionist foreign policy. So Lindsey Graham is attacking Trump. Virtually all the Republicans, you know, on record, I haven't heard Rand Paul say anything anti-war on this, agreeing with Biden yet, but all the Republicans are attacking Biden and by extension Trump. But listen, if he follows through, massive, massive credit. Massive credit to Biden, but we have to wait and see because there's been a number of times, a number of head fakes, a number of balks on getting out of Afghanistan, and also a lot of trickery where they say we get out and they leave a certain number of troops in. That was, that's what Trump was planning on doing, so and that's what his deal was effectively. So we'll see. We'll see. But never thought I'd see even – like it's not in Trump's nature to ever give any credit to his political enemies, but this is the closest we're ever going to get. This is really Trump agreeing with Biden. Quote, getting out of Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do. Right. So why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? And don't give me this bullshit that you did, because you didn't. I read the terms of the May 1st deal. You still kept some troops there. You still kept some U.S. personnel there. So you didn't do it. You could have done it. You could have done it unconditionally. You didn't do it. And now you look like an idiot. And so you're trying to scramble with something to attack Biden on, even though you're largely agreeing with him. And you say, bad tip, the timeline, something, 9-11's a holy day, whatever. And don't forget, guys, give me credit. I love how every statement Trump comes out with effectively boils down to that. Hey, don't forget, give me credit. That's what this line was. I made early withdrawal possible. Early withdrawal after 20 years. <laughs> early withdrawal, my ass cheeks, son. I made early withdrawal possible by already pulling 
uh, much of our billions of dollars of equipment and more importantly, reducing our military presence to less than 2,000 troops from the 16,000 that was there before. So again, he wants credit for the reduction of troop levels. I don't give you credit for that, and I don't give Obama credit for that, because Obama did the same shit. After the surge, he pulled, them, he pulled them out, down to a certain level. There were still troops there. Same in Iraq. Pulled them out, sent them back in, pulled out more. It was the yo-yo effect. I don't give you credit for the yo-yo effect, because you just leave the door open for somebody to raise it again. you got to get out completely. So anyway, um, it, fascinating story either way, because this is the closest you're going to get to Trump giving credit to Biden. He's kind of doing it here. All right, we're going to come back to Afghanistan in a little bit, but I want to do the Andrew Yang story first. Andrew Yang. Man, is this story from Politico something else. This is something else. This is so brazen and blatant and grotesque and transparent that I struggle to to come up with sufficient words to condemn this and make fun of this. So this is about uh, the mayor race in New York City. Look at this. Yang under fire after laughing at question about choking women. What? Andrew Yang faced an onslaught of criticism Thursday after a video circulated of the leading mayoral candidate laughing when asked if he choked bitches. In the video, someone asked the, the mayoral frontrunner whether a man, while he's fucking bitches, can keep his Tims on, a reference to Timberland boots. I like how they explain that. Yang said, I think it's purely up to your partner. The man continued by asking Yang whether he choked bitches, to which Yang laughed and backed away, appearing to gesture with his hand that the conversation was over. Quote, I think most New Yorkers know that I try to be friendly to people, and in this case, someone wanted a video, and I thought it'd be friendly, Yang told reporters Thursday when asked about the clip. But then he asked something that was plainly inappropriate that I didn't find funny at all. So I walked away and ended the interaction as quickly as possible. You know, obviously, I don't, that's appropriate. Okay, so let me give you some more here. They go on to say, but Yang's engagement with the question after he used the word bitches and his laughter at the suggestion of violence against women drew comparisons from rival campaigns and critics to former President Donald Trump and Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is facing a litany of sexual harassment accusations from former and current staffers. Quote, we have seen four years of a president who joked about sexually assaulting women and still got elected, said fellow mayoral candidate Maya Wiley during an emotional Zoom press conference Thursday held with supporters and survivors to condemn Yang's participation in the video. Quote, we should be called to lead for a moral leadership that says exactly how we have to stand up for each other, and that means every last one of us has to stand up for women and girls, because we count. Wiley's remarks were echoed by supporters and survivor advocates on the Zoom conference. Quote, he isn't winning the hearts and minds of women here in New York City by laughing at misogynistic jokes, said Sonia Osorio, president of Now New York. And then they go on to quote different, you know, organizations that exist to protect abused women and different feminist groups and every single one of them, finger wagging at Andrew Yang. Mr. Yang, how dare you? How could you? You've broken our hearts, sir. I, listen, when you read this, it's astonishing to recognize how terrible the propaganda is 
and how low-level the propaganda is when they're trying to take somebody down. Anybody who's even minimally objective who reads this is going, oh, they don't like Andrew Yang, and they're just trying to take him down by any means necessary. Now, again, I don't, I don't care what your personal opinion is on Andrew Yang. You might dislike him, and you might dislike him for policy reasons. Whatever, that's your prerogative. That's totally fine, and that's fair. And, you know, it is what it is. So I'm not, this isn't really a defense of Yang as much as it's a transparent and obvious view into how the press operates when they don't like somebody. Because when you, even by their own accounting, the interaction that Yang had with the guy, he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. He was clearly uncomfortable, and he handled it in as, you know, in as effective a way as humanly possible. Like, what is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to do in this situation? The guy wanted a picture or video. He asked him if he chokes bitches. He's like, whoa, whoa, what? He says, can you fuck a bitches with your Tims on? He's like, I guess that's up to your partner. And, you know, when the guy keeps pushing and keeps saying things that are making Andrew uncomfortable, he basically hand waves him away. He, he like, awkwardly, nervously laughs. As in, like, this is weird, and hand waves him away. And they're making a thing out of it. They're trying to, like, Andrew did something wrong. What did he do wrong? What was he supposed to do? Go drag a soapbox next to him, stand on it, and say, Good sir, let me tell you about how I value women and girls. I don't think you value women and girls, yeah. Is that what he's supposed to do? Is that what he's supposed to do? I, like, what do you want him to do? And the answer is this. It literally didn't matter what he was supposed to do. It didn't, it, it didn't matter. Whatever he did, they were going to attack him. Even if he did say, excuse me, I think that's inappropriate, and I'm a big defender of women and girls. You know what they'd say? They'd say, oh, good for him saying that. However, look at the kind of people that Andrew Yang's campaign attracts, the kind of people who would ask him such, you know, gross things and defamatory things in the first place the type of people who would smear and besmirch women and girls in the first place. That's what they would do. It is crystal clear when you read this article. They were looking for something, anything, to try to take him down. And by the way, you know why this is, right? This is just like the article that accused him of being anti-Asian. Probably written by some non-Asian, and Andrew is Asian. This 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 is what they do when they don't like you. This is what they do when they don't like you. I'll use, anything, I'll use anything to try to take you down. And so they're doing this because he's up massively in the polls. And the new round of polls has him up even more than he was before. And I saw another one right before I came on air, factoring in ranked choice voting, it would come down to him and Scott Stringer, and he would beat Scott Stringer. So this is why they're doing it. They don't like him. Now, again, you might not like him for some policy reason, but that would be a fair criticism. And one thing I've noticed about Yang's people is that every time I've criticized them, policy-oriented, and it's fair, they say, yeah, fair point. You understand what I'm saying? So, but this is just disgusting, grotesque smear job. I mean, but here's, here's a good point that Crystal Ball made to me about this. There's an argument, is Andrew Yang leading despite the media trying to take him down or because the media is trying to take him down? Because we're at that point, we're at that level. Because the media has become just so clearly 
elitist and detached from the concerns of regular people. And there might the same level of hatred that Republicans have of the media, according to the polls, we might be at the point where certain factions and segments of the progressive left feel that same disdain towards the media. I know I do, but polls have showed historically that Democrats are largely way more trusting of the media than Republicans. But at least with this example, this might be, this might be a tipping point where finally people on the left might be starting to wake up to the fact that even media outlets that you nominally may have liked, a lot of what they do is protect corporate Democrats. They're just doing rah-rah team Democrat and protecting the most conservative Democrats. And they'll smear anybody to their left. And there's a great example of it right here. So if that's the case, and I sort of hope it is the case that he's leading because the media is smearing him and there's a backlash to that, then we've hit, you know, we really have hit a tipping point. And it's really the Trumpification of politics. But I don't mean that with a negative connotation. I mean it with a positive connotation of he unmasked, he somehow unmasked people for being just as shitty and gross as he is. Showed that a lot of these people who are in these prestigious positions are just elitists with no, no core, no principles, no policy ideas, no values. And... They just do an establishment protection racket. So they are comparing him to Trump because Trump was accused of sexual assault and Trump was called a misogynist and a sexist. They're saying, oh, this is a lot like Trump. This interaction proves he's a lot like Trump. What are you talking What? Or the comparison to Andrew Cuomo, which is also ridiculous because Andrew Cuomo was accused of, you know, harassment, touching, inappropriate stuff. There's zero accusations against Andrew Yang of any physical wrongdoing, any sexual assault, sexual harassment, anything of that nature. There's nothing on that at all, not even a little bit. But they're conflating. They don't care. They want to take him down so it's anything goes. Do you understand? Do you see through this? It'd be hard to not see through this at this point. Again, even by their own accounting of what happened here, they're like, oh, he awkwardly laughed and like hand-waved him away. Yeah, because he was uncomfortable with it. And by the way, even if he wasn't uncomfortable with it, it would be because he knows the guy's trolling. And he's an adult, and adults deal with trolling in an adult way. They don't, you know, launch into some sort of monologue or soliloquy about how I'm the protector of women and girls, yay. And also, by the way, I don't need, like, to get to the core of what's being said here, this guy's joking, this guy's trolling, whatever you might like it, dislike it, I don't care, doesn't matter. He's not implying that it's non-consensual, right? Like, oh, do you like to fuck bitches with your Tims on? Do you like choking bitches? He's not saying, like, are you doing some sort of act of assault on a woman during a sex act? The implication is, if they are for it and you partake in it, do, do you do it? That's the implication. That's how any normal human being would read this. Anybody who's even vaguely slightly familiar with internet culture and trolls. Like, that's how you read. It's not like, he's not asking, Mr. Yang, do you assault women sexually? Of course he's not asking that. Of course he's not asking that. Unless he was sent by one of the other campaigns on purpose to put Andrew Yang in this position so they could try to take him down using this. For the love of God, make some decent arguments. You want, you want to hold 
Andrew Yang accountable. Okay, go look at what Crystal and I did on Crystal, Kyle, and Friends. Shameless plug here, but keep it real. It was a great interview, and this was a great part of the interview, where we held him accountable for his terrible comments on BDS. That's how you hold him accountable. And if you watch the entire interview, or you listen to the entire interview, you'll see there's a number of areas where I question him and where I prod him, where I, I've disagreed with him in the past, whether it's um, sunsetting government regulations, which is something he said on the campaign trail, or whether it's Medicare for all, which he had some terrible comments on it when he was on the campaign trail running for president. I, I pressured him on that. I pushed him on that. And you could determine whether or not you agree with or disagree with his answer. If you're policy-focused, people will respect that. Even his own people respect that. But they're not. They're just trying to take him down using sleazy, underhanded tricks. That's what this is. This is, again, weaponizing identity to protect the establishment. That's what this is. And unfortunately, that's a lot of what identity politics has become. You have corporate Democrats, right-wing Democrats. They know they're not out-lefting the left on economic stuff and foreign policy stuff and domestic stuff. So they got, I got to find a way to outleft them. How do I outleft them? I know. I'll lean into identitarianism as hard as possible and accuse them of being racist or bigoted or, or whatever. And here we are. So now they're doing an underhanded smear of an Asian American candidate effectively accusing him of sex, sexism or worse, you know, some sort of sexual assault with the conflation with Trump and, and Andrew Cuomo. This misogynistic comment that he didn't push back on. He was clearly uncomfortable. He clearly didn't like it. And even if he wasn't uncomfortable, I wouldn't care because it says nothing about him at all in a negative way. This shows you no matter what, if they don't like you, they're going to go for the jugular. No matter what, if they don't like you, they're going to go for the jugular. And it's just, the reason this one got to me so much is that I, I don't know if I've ever seen a more transparent example of the media having no principles, just playing favorites, and attacking somebody simply because they don't like them. But this is what's been going on the entire campaign. But if Andrew Yang pulls off the victory in the New York City mayor race, and it looks like he will, you know, that says a lot about the state of the media. And um, even though there's a lot of, like, suppression of independent content, new media content, somehow we're, we're competing in the war against old media simply because old media is disastrous and, and terribly bad. You know, they're so bad that even us being suppressed we get viewed more favorably by the people. That's amazing. So we're fighting, we're fighting a war here with two hands tied behind our back and still somehow competing. And that, again, that's not to say how great we are. It's to say how terrible they are. But, you know, the only thing I can promise you is that I have integrity and I'm telling you the truth as I see it. That's all I can promise you. But that's enough. That's a lot because you look at the rest of the media landscape and you can see right through it. And you can see how this is nonsense, pointless, virtue signaling and smearing to try to take down the candidate leading, probably because they don't like the fact that he's in favor of universal basic income and he's an outsider. That's enough to get the establishment to hate you. You're in favor of universal basic income. They view that on par with like, you know, New Deal programs really shifting the balance of power. They don't like that and they don't like that he's an outsider and didn't come up from within the party and didn't climb the ladder and get the pats on the heads from current leadership. They don't like that at all. And this is, this is what they do. So 
now you know. It's beyond disgusting. And um, you can't help but kind of feel bad for Andrew because this is the stuff he's got to put up with. But I do think that to this point they've handled the unfair criticisms well, where usually they just sort of don't respond, or if they respond they say very little, and then the criticism goes away because everybody knows this is ridiculous deep down. That's how they got to handle it. Keep focusing on the issues, and he'll probably end up pulling it off. But there's a lesson here about the media, and the lesson has never been more clear. All right, next. Back to Afghanistan, baby. Back to Afghanistan. Here we go. So um, Biden announced a full withdrawal from Afghanistan. He gave a speech on it. He's answered some questions to reporters on this. His comments to this point have been phenomenal. They're unequivocal. He was asked, is this a tough decision? He was like, no, it's not. He said also, it's unconditional. We're getting out. It doesn't matter what conditions on the ground there are. We're getting out. We've been there 20 years. That's it. We're done. So a lot of things have been good, and I've given him credit, tentative credit, but credit. At first, I was 50-50 on whether or not he'll actually get out. Then I shifted it to 60-40, thinking he'd actually get out completely based on a lot of his comments and the arguments he was making. But ah, there's always a catch when you're dealing with corporate Democrats and the establishment. So uh, Jackson Hinkle, credit to him, found this buried in an article, I think, in the New York Times about uh, what Biden is doing with Afghanistan. Look at this. So he says Biden is not leaving Afghanistan. This is exactly what happened in Iraq in 2011. And then look at the highlighted portion. Instead of declared troops in Afghanistan, the United States will most likely rely on a shadowy combination of clandestine special operations forces, Pentagon contractors, and covert intelligence operatives to find and attack the most dangerous al-Qaeda or Islamic Islamic state threats, current and former American officials said. So that was in one of the original – that was – okay. So I misstated it. I thought – Virtually every article I read on it at the time said, no, it's a full withdrawal. But apparently in this one New York Times article, that was buried in there. Now, should that give you pause about what Biden's actually going to do? Yes. Yes. Because they have some source or some official who's saying, yeah, we're getting the boots on the ground troops, the combat troops out, but we're still going to keep special operations forces there. We're still going to keep intelligence officers there. So if he were to do that, That's also what Trump was proposing for his May 1st deadline to get out. It wasn't really getting out. It was still keeping these people there. So if he does that, all the credit I gave him is gone. He deserves no credit because that's not a full withdrawal. And what will happen is eventually they'll yo-yo the troop levels back up because that's what they always do. Okay, so that was in one of the original articles. It's a little wink and a nod to the military-industrial complex. Yeah, 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 we're getting out, but are we really... I don't know. So Jackson may be right. However, now we have some contradictory information on that. Article I read yesterday. Let me show you this. This is from CNN. Afghanistan withdrawal will likely dismantle a CIA intelligence network built up over 20 years. Now, I'm going to get to more stuff on that a little bit later in a separate segment, but CIA operatives are under the impression what was said in the New York Times article is not true because they are desperately trying to make the case to the media, reaching out to all of their little puppets and mainstream media and warn, hey, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do the withdrawal. Do the withdrawal. Don't take us out. They outline in the article 
that if Biden goes through with what he announced and what everybody thinks he believes at this point, a full withdrawal, that, oh, my God, intelligence gathering will be so much more difficult. We'll have to set up a base in, like, the UAE, and it will take a very long time if there's a problem in Afghanistan to get there, and then our enemies will know, and then it'll lead to more firefights and more deaths, and we can't have that, and it's so bad. And, this, I mean, we've worked so hard to build up this network, and we need to be there. And so in the article, it's basically spooks telling the media, run our propaganda, tell us it would be a terrible idea to fully get out. And, again, that tells me they are under the impression No, Biden is going to get us all out, all out. So now we have contradictory information. Some people on the record are saying, oh, the thing Jackson showed, oh, we're going to keep some special ops people there, some intelligence people there. But according to the intelligence people, they're afraid they're going to be told, you got to get out too. And the other thing is they say we rely heavily on the protection from the actual troops, the boots on the ground. Like we rely on them to allow us to operate there. So... Some people seem to think we're keeping special ops people there and, and CIA people there. The, the spooks themselves are like, no, I think we're fully leaving, and they're basically using the media to try to prod Biden to keep them there. So what's going to happen? I don't know. Because, sorry, no pun intended to my lovely co-host Crystal Ball on Crystal Conference, but I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know what's going to happen. We have to wait and see. But now we know for sure there's contradictory information. And I will say this. I will say this, based on all my time covering politics, usually when there's contradictory information, the worst thing will happen. Sorry, but that is what I think. That is where I lean now. So I went from 60-40 thinking um, he is going to get us out based on the arguments he was using and how unequivocal he was. Now I lean 60-40 in. He will get all the combat troops out, but he's going to pull the Trump move, which is I'll leave the special ops people there and or I will leave the – CIA people there, or, and, and some contractors too. We'll see. But I think what's very, the most likely scenario at this point, based on the evidence I've seen, everything I've seen, is he will get all of the actual boots-on-the-ground combat troops out, but he's going to leave, like I said, CIA people, some contractors, some special ops people on the ground. But he will also go around acting like he did a full withdrawal of everybody and, and campaign on that and act like he did the thing that everybody wants, even though he didn't really. So that's my guess. We'll have to watch it unfold. But, you know, I'm trying to tell you ahead of time, and I'm trying to read the tea leaves as much as possible, which is difficult. But like I said, generally speaking, as a general rule, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, when when you're unsure and when there's some sort of contradiction, usually the worst thing happens. And so I hope that's not the case here. Okay, next. The CIA is absolutely desperate for us to stay in Afghanistan. And there's some reporting that Biden... It wants to do a full withdrawal. He announced a full withdrawal, including of, you know, intelligence agents and, and contractors and, you know, people who were combat troops, boots on the ground, and not, special ops, etc. So there's little contradictory information. We may fully get out. We may not. We'll have to wait and see and judge it when it happens. But certainly people in the intelligence agencies, in the deep state, 
they are under the impression that Biden wants to get fully out. So they run to the media panicked, and they have the media write their propaganda, as I predicted, by the way. So remember, what did I tell you guys? I said, watch, hear me now, quote me later. The intelligence agencies are going to plant stories of warning about imminent terror attacks if Biden pulls out of Afghanistan. Now, we didn't quite get that, but we almost already got that, and it hasn't even been a week. So the title of the article on CNN is Afghanistan withdrawal will likely dismantle a CIA intelligence network built up over 20 years. Now, you might read that and I might read that and go, sweet. That's not how CNN is reporting this. CNN is reporting this as, oh my, that sounds, are you sure you want to do that? So I want to give you some of what they say. They say a more dangerous mission because agency personnel won't be able to operate out of a local military base and will instead have to travel from Kabul or even outside of Afghanistan, they would be forced to travel longer distances to more exposed places that might be in Taliban-controlled areas. That not only gives potential targets the chance to hear of the impending raid and get away, it also provides adversaries the opportunity to launch a counterattack of their own, with agency personnel far outside the so-called golden hour from the nearest hospital. Quote, you have a longer time to get there, so adversaries will tell people you're coming, said one former intelligence official. So even if you have the right place, the chances of the guy not being there go up. And then once you get there, you have to land if you want to catch people, and they're going to rally toward that area. When you fly out, it's going to be like the OK Corral. You increase the risk to the force, and you increase the risk for the mission to fail, this person said. You see what they're doing here? Further complicating the picture is the risk that the Taliban could overrun the country once the U.S. military leaves, potentially forcing the U.S. to shutter its embassy to avoid another incident like the 2012 attack on the U.S. embassy in Benghazi, which killed four Americans. Do you see what they're doing there? By the way, they continue. A full U.S. and NATO withdrawal speeds the eventual collapse of the Afghan government and the unviability of the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, which then leads us to a pre-9-11 collection posture where we have nothing in the country, said Mark Polymeropoulos, a former CIA operations officer. And then they conclude with this. They effectively say, hey, if another 9-11 happens, and it looks like it's gonna if you pull out of Afghanistan, quote, Biden has agreed to take on that risk. Here we go, just like I told you. Right on time. That train's never late. I told you this is what they were going to do. That's exactly what they're doing. First of all, why is CNN uncritically reporting what current CIA operatives and former CIA operatives are saying? You're supposed to hold the powerful accountable. You're supposed to fact check. You're supposed to do investigative journalism and reporting. Instead, they take what a former special operations person says, and they run it uncritically as if it's gospel, as if it's true. What are you doing? What are you doing? This is exactly how we ended up getting into Iraq in the first place. Just run whatever the intelligence agencies are saying. Oh, they're saying that Saddam is a direct threat to us and he has weapons of mass destruction and he's probably going to launch against us. Okay, I guess we'll run that. So the media was a puppet to the powerful. The media was a puppet to the military industrial complex. So now we have Biden at least nominally saying the right thing, saying we're going to fully get out. I even want... You know, I even want the, the special ops people out. I even want the intelligence agency out. We got to fully get out. How long do you want to stay there? Forever? This is what he said. And the media lines up immediately behind 
the deep state and the military industrial complex. And this is a scoop. They reached out, so the former and current CIA operatives reached out to the media and had them run a hair on fire piece, fear mongering about pulling out of Afghanistan. I told you, now listen, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna go a step further. Because my original prediction, even though it's already basically come true, or at least half true, I think my original prediction will come fully true. So in other words, in the time between now and September 11th, or on September 11th, roughly in that area, right, you're going to have the media, they're going to have an anonymous uh, official in the intelligence agencies is going to say, we have high confidence that there will be a terror attack if we pull out of Afghanistan. High confidence. Now, it might be implied it's in the U.S., or it might be implied it's going to be in Afghanistan, whatever it is. They're going to say we have high confidence that there's going to be a terror attack if we pull out, so we should stay. And the media is going to uncritically report that and run the war propaganda. And therefore, pressuring Biden from the right, pressuring Biden from a neocon perspective. And then it's going to be on old Uncle Joe with half his brain functioning to have the spine and the backbone and the courage to say, fuck off. I don't believe you. I don't think it's true. And I'm not going to do that. Because they're already telling him the Afghanistan government's going to collapse and it's on you. And uh, they might have another 9-11 here and that would be on you. They're already blaming him for stuff that didn't happen. There's no evidence it's going to happen. But even if it does happen, that wouldn't be the fault of this. If another 9-11 happens, maybe it has more to do with the fact that we funded an armed al-Qaeda in Syria and funded an armed al-Qaeda in Yemen and gave money and weapons to Saudi Arabia who spreads radical Islam around the world. That would have more to do to it, with more to do with it. But no, they blame this. They, and if the Afghanistan government collapses, blaming pulling out of Afghanistan, why don't you blame us ever going into Afghanistan in the first place? The Taliban controls more of Afghanistan today than they did when we invaded. That's the definition of failure. What we did didn't work. But the military industrial complex and the deep state wants endless war. War is very profitable for certain corporations, certain companies, certain executives, certain billionaires. War is very, very profitable. The other thing is, as we explained a thousand times, they like having geopolitical control in the global chessboard against Russia and China. They want control of these regions, which they consider vital. They also want access to the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth in Afghanistan, the opium in Afghanistan, the oil in Iraq. That's more of what this has to do with. And so they're just using the media to do war propaganda as their puppets. That's what they're doing. You think the media would have learned at this late date, hey, you've got to question the intelligence officials. Don't just uncritically report what they say. But the media doesn't. They uncritically report what they say. And this is a rare area where Biden is actually nominally saying the right things, and they turn on Biden. If Biden never, when Biden says the wrong things, they're there to defend him all day long. He's here to say the right things now, and so they're turning on him and going with the intelligence officers who want endless war. I told you it was going to happen. It's already happening, and they're going to ramp it up. And Biden needs to hold strong. I hope he does, but obviously I have my doubts. Okay, next. All right, so now we're going to talk about um, Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin, unfortunately. 
Here we go. Well, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear this, even though this is heartbreaking and it sucks, but it appears like Joe Manchin is going to get his way again. So Andrew Perez, uh, reporter for the Daily Poster, David Sirota's outlet, he tweets this, of course, and he's showing an article from Axios here, Senate Democrats settling on a 25% corporate tax rate. Between the lines, while Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, has made clear his preference for a 25% rate, he's far from alone. Democrats who've privately hinted they may be uncomfortable with going to 28% include Tim Kaine, Mark Warner, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, and John Tester of Montana. The Democratic dynamic is similar to the one about increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which was ultimately rejected by eight Senate Democrats. Some of them talked about something closer to $11 an hour. Lesson number 7,462 that drawing red lines, being aggressive, and not taking no for an answer works. It just always happens to be the case that it's the corporate Democrats who do that. It's the right-wing Democrats who do that. You know who never draws those red lines and throws around their weight and threatens to tank a bill? The left. The left. And I mean all of the left. I mean Bernie Sanders, and I mean the Justice Democrats in the House, There literally was an article in Bloomberg the other week that we covered where they said in no uncertain terms, we are not going to do the Tea Party approach. We're going to try to cuddle up to the establishment and win that way. So in other words, we'll use the private pressure behind the scenes to beg and ask really strongly for the things that we want. And then if we don't get it, we'll vote for it anyway and then be cheerleaders for it anyway. That's what's happening. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. This isn't up for interpretation. This is plain as day. It's right in front of you. Anybody can connect these dots. So stop and think about this, because this is just a microcosm of modern-day politics in the United States of America. This story says everything. You go back to just 2016. You know what the nominal corporate tax rate was? 35%. Donald Trump gets in there and says, we're going to cut it to 21%. By the way, at the same time, cutting taxes for the wealthy in other ways, 83% of that tax bill's benefits went to the top 1%. It was just a total scam of a bill to give more money to the wealthy. That's all it was. It's class warfare against regular people. That's all it was. So Trump cuts it from 35% to 21%. Biden runs for office, and he says, I'm going to raise the corporate taxes back up. So Democrats go, hooray! Voters, I mean, go, hooray! What the party whispers is, we're going to raise it back up to 28%. It was just 35%. The nominal rate was 35% in 2016. Granted, there were all these loopholes, but the, the nominal rate, which is the rate on paper, was 35%. He cuts it to 21%, and your response is, we'll do 28. He's already, basically, his position from 2016, Biden's was, is, I'm for a corporate tax cut. At a time when corporations are paying a historically low percentage of the tax burden, he says, I'm for a corporate tax cut. I don't like 35. I like 28. This is a Democrat. This is, why, this is why I call him a moderate Republican. You think I do that because, it, you know, I'm joking or it's – I do it because it's accurate. That's why I call him a moderate Republican, because he votes like a moderate Republican. He acts like a moderate Republican. So 2016, Joe Biden looks at the 35% and says, I don't like that. I want to cut it. That's dumb. So – We go from 35% all the way down to 21%. Biden says, I want 28%. And then what happens? 
Well, you just defined the terms of the debate, and you set up the Overton window, and so in comes the even further right-wing Democrats. Joe Biden's a corporate Democrat. Jordan Biden, uh, Jordan Biden, where the fuck did that come from? Joe Biden is a centrist. Joe Biden is a moderate Republican. And then you have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema chime in. They're even to the right of Biden, and they go, I'd like to have my shitty voice heard now, my corrupt voice heard now, and we'll get to another story on that later because their corruption is proven, 25%. And it looks like the rest of the Democrats are going to go, well, all right, what are you going to do? If they're saying they're drawing a red line and we get nothing or 25%, I guess we're going to get 25%. I guess that's what we're stuck with. So the other Democrats are going to go along with it. And ultimately, many of them will be genuinely happy at the fact that it's 25%. So the Democratic Party that's supposed to be the left party in America was for a 10% corporate tax cut at a time when corporations are already making out like thieves and bandits and regular people are getting screwed. 2016, the corporate tax rate was 35%. The Democratic Party wanted it to be 25%. And you wonder why the left is angry and bitter and mad and has had enough and is fed up and is turning our guns on anybody and everybody around us, metaphorically. You know, we're going after everybody because nobody is fighting for us. Even the people who nominally agree with us when it comes to ideology, it doesn't matter because they have no strategy and they have no fight and they have no backbone. So they're never going to win. And they're doubling down on a strategy that has proven to not work. Private pressure and writing letters and saying, please give us some crumbs, good sir. To which the establishment responds, no. And they go, okay, I'll vote for the bill anyway. Thank you very much, good sir. That's where we are. This is a microcosm of U.S. politics. For the past decades, decades, this is what's been going on. So there's a lot of blame to go around here. I think Biden is corrupt and serving corporations, which is why he wanted that 28% rate. I think Manchin and Cinema are even more corrupt. And again, I'll prove it later. We have a story detailing that, which is why they wanted a 25%. Um, So, you know, blame the corrupt ones first and foremost, but notice the tactics of the corrupt ones, it's hardball, and it works. It always does. Because Joe Joe Manchin will tank your must-pass bill in a second if he doesn't like it. But you know who never does that? The left. So there's also blame to go around there, because even the people who nominally agree with us will never play this kind of hardball, and so they'll never get their way. And so really it's just all they're there for is performative virtue signaling. They're like the Washington generals that are, you know, their whole point is to lose to the Harlem Globetrotters. That's the whole point of the left in Congress and the left in the Senate. They're never going to draw red lines and they're never going to fight. And this is always going to be the result. Of course, I'm going to hate them. Of course, I'm going to turn on them. You'd be an idiot not to turn on them. They're not doing their job. They just virtue signal on Twitter all day and put up no fight. So anyway, what would you have to do? What would you have to do if you were on the left? in order to fight on this. And we haven't even discussed the $15 minimum wage that they're now talking about 11. You would have to be the one to say, no, I have a block of 12 or however many justice Democrats or left-wing Congress people, and we are going to vote as a block. None of us are going to vote for your shitty bill unless our priorities are in it, and here's what we're demanding. If they did that, there are more of the progressives than there are of the hardcore right-wing Democrats the cinemas, the mansions. And so if you held steady like the Tea Party did, you can get a lot of your priorities in the bill. And guess what? Sometimes you won't. And when that's the case, tank the fucking bill. Shoot the hostage. 
You have to be willing to show that you're going to do that in order to be taken seriously, in order to get a seat at the table. But they're not going to do that because they don't. Here's the saddest part of it all. In the case of the people who actually agree with us on ideology, they don't want the media to hate them and shit on them 24-7 because they're complete narcissists. They're totally selfish. They care about their own image more than they care about actually fixing problems. So the media would hate them, and leadership would turn on them and hate them and retaliate, and they are too scared to deal with leadership in that scenario. Instead of when leadership retaliates, you take the fight publicly and expose how corrupt the leadership is and take that fight head on. Nancy Pelosi's got a, like a less than 30% approval rating, and you don't want to take on a fight with her? The dumbest thing I've ever seen. But this is how they operate. This is how they function. And also, now they know these people personally. And as I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so they genuinely see the good in these people, even though there's no good there when it comes to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin and all these assholes. So that's where we are, perpetually losing. God, this story makes me so mad all the way around. I hate every aspect of it. Every aspect of it. Corporate tax rate was 35%. Trump cut it to 21% because he's a bitch to corporations also and massively corrupt. And then... Biden says no, 28%, which is still a cut from the 35%. The corporate Democrats, the right-wing Democrats, step in and say, no, we want 25, and we're going to probably end up with 25. And then they're going to want you to pat them on the back and tell them they're amazing, if slash when they get this through. They're gonna, and there'll be another seven articles calling Biden the new FDR. And you and I sit here and pull our fucking hair out and lose our minds. Guys, I can't. This is, it's like a bad dream, and it never ends. Okay, next. One of the stories I had to cover, and I did, even though I really didn't want to, was Russiagate. Was Russiagate. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it. Uh, it dominated U.S. politics for years, and so I was put in a position where I had to talk about it. And, of course, when you went through the specifics of the stories that were put out there, they were mostly bullshit. They were mostly bullshit. Every time I dig into one of the stories, it turns out to just be totally not true or something totally twisted and misleading. And so the narrative of, like, Donald Trump is Putin's puppet was ridiculous. The policies he, were doing, he was doing were actively hostile to Russia, so what are, you, what are you doing here? What's the narrative you're creating? And, and the fact of the matter is the Democrats in an attempt to own Trump and take down Trump pivoted to the right on this issue in terms of foreign policy. And so they started up a new Cold War and made Russia this giant adversary and were resisting from the right and were being more hawkish and calling for more sanctions. And it was all just for political, partisan, tribal reasons to try to own Trump. And there are terrible consequences associated with that. And everything we warned that would happen, happened. And so now, one of the central pieces of Russiagate has crumbled. The story's fallen apart. Take a look at this. This is in the Daily Beast, but a variety of outlets are reporting this. It was a huge election time story that prompted cries of treason. But according to a newly disclosed assessment, Donald Trump might have been right to call it a hoax. It was a blockbuster story about Russia's return to the imperial great game in Afghanistan. The Kremlin had spread money around the longtime Central Asian battlefield for militants to kill remaining U.S. forces. It sparked a massive outcry from Democrats and their resistance amplifiers about the treasonous Russian puppet in the White House whose admiration for Vladimir Putin had endangered American troops. 
But on Thursday, the Biden administration announced that U.S. intelligence only had low to moderate confidence in the story after all, translated from the jargon of spy world. That means that the intelligence agencies have found the story is, at best, unproven and possibly untrue. The intelligence agencies have lied to us about everything. They're the ones who lied us into the war in Iraq, an illegal and offensive war that killed a minimum 200,000 innocent civilians and killed thousands of our own soldiers and destroyed a country, wasted so much money, time, effort. It was a massive, corrupt military-industrial complex scam in many ways, had a lot to do with the oil, and Afghanistan has to do with the trillions in mineral wealth and, and the opium. They lie all the time. But somehow, Democrats shut their brains off when it came to them saying, oh, Trump is Putin's puppet, and the Russian soldiers, Russia's government is putting a bounty on U.S. soldiers' heads. And this was such a pervasive thing, I want to show you what mainstream media was saying. Today, President Trump dismissing the Russian bounty intelligence story as a hoax meant to damage him and Republicans. The president often counts his relationship with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. But the White House also responding tonight to a bombshell report accusing Russia of offering bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. And now you know from this reporting in the New York Times, which has since been confirmed by the Wall Street Journal, that not only does the president know that Russia was paying for American soldiers' deaths. News. Get this. The Washington Post is now reporting that the alleged Russian bounties to Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are believed to have resulted in the deaths of U.S. troops. Like this New York Times story about a stunning U.S. intel assessment, finding that Russia secretly ordered, uh, offered Afghan militants bounties to kill U.S. troops. Still comes under fire over those bombshell reports that the White House was told Russia was paying bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The most important application of that question is what did the president know about Vladimir Putin offering a bounty for the killing of American soldiers in Afghanistan, and when did he know it? A senior Afghan official confirmed to CBS News that the reports were not only true, but the Russian government achieved some success with their plans. Barry Kelly, I cannot tell a lie, Mackin, that he insists the president does in fact read everything he needs to read. We need to look at the real threat to U.S. troops and the risk that Russia was putting a bounty on their heads. The Americans found out this weekend that Vladimir Putin is paying to put bounties on the heads of American troops. Telling CNN that the White House was warned about Russia offering <clears throat> bounties, actual bounties to kill U.S. troops in Afghanistan. He's not even there yet. He's still suggesting that the reporting about the fact that there were these bounties offered is fake. Meanwhile, your organization, the New York Times and others, are getting some fairly detailed uh, reporting about how it actually works. Despite those denials over and over, Sources tell CNN that last week the U.S. even shared that intelligence with British officials as some of the British troops would have been targeted as well. Yeah, now, just to say nothing of, t of putting bounties on, on American troops. Um, it's unbelievable, Jordan. Public reporting that Russia had bounties on the heads of American soldiers. And you know what a bounty is? If somebody puts a price on your head and they will pay it if you are killed. 
Credit to the Biden administration for the rare instance of complete honesty. And I think sometimes you get that from Joe. Every now and then he's too honest and he says the thing out loud that other more Weasley politicians would be quiet about. But he was like, yeah, we saw the intelligence. There's low to moderate confidence. Guys, just so you understand, even when they say high confidence, that means we have no evidence. Because if there's evidence, they just show the evidence. They don't show the evidence because they don't have it. So even when the intelligence agencies say we have high confidence of X, Y, or Z, they are lying. Never mind low to moderate confidence. I mean, it's totally made up, utterly made up, completely made up. Now, here's my question for you guys. This was a conspiracy theory at the behest of the establishment that ramped up tensions with another nuclear-armed power, pushed us towards war with another nuclear-armed power, because the argument was they're effectively paying to have our soldiers killed. That's an act of war, is it not? So then it would be self-defense if we attack back or if we put troops right on their border or if we... In Ukraine, for example, I mean, we've already armed Ukrainian rebels who are aligned with neo-Nazis, but if we did that more and said, we're going to put bounties on your soldiers or whatever the fuck, do you see the bad path this can go down? You're on a permanent war footing with another nuclear armed power, and you're lying and doing propaganda to try to increase tensions and get us closer to war. So this was a total conspiracy theory. This is complete misinformation. So my question for the cable providers, for YouTube, for all these outlets that now love to censor and deplatform is, are there going to be consequences? Are the cable providers going to be pressured to drop CNN and MSNBC and these mainstream media outlets in the same way that they're, they've been pressured to drop One American News Network and Newsmax? Because those outlets are totally full of shit, and they've lied with conspiracy theories like stop the steal nonstop. There was pressure. Pull them down. Is there going to be pressure to take down CNN? Hey, CNN, I'm sorry. They shouldn't have a voice in the discourse anymore because they're lying and they're doing war propaganda and they're doing conspiracy theories. And that's dangerous. And in this case, it really is dangerous because they're ramping up for war. Is there going to be, are there going to be any consequences? Is YouTube going to pull down the videos from CNN and MSNBC that push this conspiracy theory? I mean, they took down Jordan Chariton's videos from the January 6th attempted insurrection because he spoke to some of the people that were there and asked them, why are they there? And then they said, oh, it's a stolen election, fraudulent election, and I'm protesting that. And they would push back on it. Jordan Chariton's outlet would push back on it. And YouTube pulled down that video and said, we have to take it down for misinformation because they're pushing the conspiracy theory that the election was fraudulent. They weren't pushing that conspiracy theory at all. But even if they were, we're supposed to have free exchange of ideas, even insane ones, even bullshit ones, because there is no such thing as a ministry of truth that's objective that will only keep up the right stuff. But here we have an actual conspiracy theory, complete misinformation and disinformation that ramps up, ramps up towards lies. There will be no consequences. No video is going to get pulled down. They're, by the way, they're not even going to get docked on the algorithms. By the way, that's step one. So we've been victim of step one for a long time, just so you know. YouTube admitted a few years ago in their own newsletter, their own press release, they said, oh, we're going to crack down on borderline content and pump out authoritative content. You know what that means? That means secular talk videos don't reach new audiences. So subscriber growth has crawled to nearly a halt, a complete standstill. We used to gain 30,000 subs, 40,000 subs a month. Now we gain one or 2,000. Not because I'm doing such a bad job or the topics I'm covering aren't as interesting or anything like that. No, the algorithm docks us and tries to not show up to new people, whereas CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, their stuff is pumped out to new people all the time. And this is the shit they were talking about.
complete Cold War bullshit, lies, misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theory that ramps us up to war with another nuclear armed power, and there will be no consequences because they lied on behalf of the establishment and people with power. And that's why you should oppose censorship, and that's why you should oppose deplatforming, because they will always come after people who question power and question authority, like us. They'll never go after people who push the line of the powerful. And that's what they did. This was lying on behalf of the establishment, lying on behalf of the military-industrial complex and the deep state and the intelligence agencies. So they're going to totally get away with it. But now you know. It was all a lie. The, fact that, the thing that got me was when the Mueller report came out, because all the Russiagate people were convinced that Trump was going to be dragged out of the White House in handcuffs. They brought in Mueller. Everybody had nothing but positive things to say about Mueller. He's going to do a thorough investigation. He's going to make sure to get to the bottom of this. And they're going to find the collusion. They're going to find that Trump is Putin's puppet, and they're going to take him out of the Oval Office in handcuffs. So many people believe that. Then they did the report, spent millions of dollars, took a tremendous amount of time, and they came back and said, oh, what we found is we found run-of-the-mill corruption. Of course you're going to. Trump's massively corrupt. His people are massively corrupt. Duh. Take him down for that. We, we found uh, corruption. And we found a lot of shady con men characters around him, but we found nothing involved in being, about him being a puppet of Russia. We found nothing on that front. And what happened? All those people instantly turned on Mueller because it's a cult. It's a religion. They believe it despite the evidence. So that's what happened. But when people continue to push Russiagate after Mueller was like, I didn't really get anything on it. That's when I was like, oh, we are so fucked. We're so fucked. Because if they're still defending it after the, the whole thing that was supposed to bring him down didn't bring him down, well, then where are we going to go? It's already been disproven. It's already been debunked. Now you get even more specifics about how it's debunked. This reminds me of the story where they said Paul Manafort met with Julian Assange, which was a total lie. And so many mainstream media outlets ran with it. They, they would have had video evidence, and they didn't because it didn't happen. So many mainstream media outlets ran with it. They... The whole thing was a lie, and it's even more of a lie than you thought. That's the main takeaway here. And there's going to be no consequences for any of them because they lied for the team with all the power. But instead, outlets like mine calling them out will continue to get screwed, will continue to get deranked in the algorithm. At some point, it'll probably get worse, and they'll ramp up to more censorship and deplatforming, and round and round we go. So if you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention because this stuff is egregious. Okay. Next. We'll do this one and then I'll take a quick break. I don't think you guys are going to be surprised to hear about this, but it still is quite a telling story. This is from David Sirota over at his outlet, the, uh, the Daily Poster. He says, Scoop, as millions are stuck in poverty, two Dem senators who blocked the $15 minimum wage amendment are raking in corporate PAC cash. Now they're headlining a closed-door conference with the corporate lobby group leading the fight to kill the minimum wage bill. Wow. Wow. So they're going to speak at a group called, believe it or not, this is hilarious, the NRA. But it's not National Rifle Association. It's the National Restaurant Association. And um, they're going to headline this bipartisan panel called 
Seeking Unity, Conversations on Finding Bipartisan Solutions. Um, it, quote, is an off-the-record event closed to the press. The schedule says it will also feature former President George W. Bush, war criminal, war criminal delight, and uh, Fox News personality Dana Perino. Now, I love this fact, too. They were added to the event right after they blocked the $15 minimum wage. That was their, their payback. So I don't know how much they're getting paid, if anything, but the real point of this event and why there's no press and it's closed door is you, you know, talk to schmooze all these big money lobbyists, these lobbyists representing corporations and billionaires. And you make the connections and they say, hey, good job. They pat you on the back. You have a drink together. They give you more money for your reelection campaign. And it is the epitome. This is quintessential Washington corruption. And the most disgusting part is, who knows if they even view it that way? I honestly believe many of these people just think, yeah, this is how Washington works. This is how politics works. It is what it is. It's not corruption. It's nothing. It's just, it is what it is. This is the way it functions, and it can't change, and it will never change. And so they partake in it, and they rationalize it. They probably rationalize it where even though they're just corrupt tools of, of big money and corporations, they really probably think they're some sort of high-minded geniuses who make compromise on bills and therefore get as much progress as possible. Remember, like Hillary said, I'm a progressive who likes to get things done, something along those lines. So I think in their mind, they think, no, I mean, if it wasn't for me, if it wasn't for me, Joe Manchin, and me, Kirsten Cinema, you wouldn't have any minimum wage increase. And now... What's going on? I think it's Cinema and Romney are going to propose or have proposed a bipartisan $11 an hour minimum wage bill that um, has some sort of e-verify attached to it to crack down on illegal immigrants. And also it may have the provision to tie it to either inflation or median wage growth. And that bill, let's be clear about this, is a total scam. It's a total scam. It's not, oh, a compromise, a middle ground that's going to be wonderful. No. You want to know why they would do this? Here's why they would do this. If you do an $11 minimum wage and then you tie it to either inflation or median wage growth, that means you get a raise every year with it, right? But the raise is only keeping it at the equivalent of $11 today. You know where $11 an hour, if you work full time, will get you an apartment where you could live in this country? How many states? Zero. None. None. It gets you nowhere. So, in other words, they're going to blow all their political capital, raising the minimum wage to still not a living wage, and then they're going to tie it to either inflation or median wage growth so that they never, ever revisit the issue ever again, and the minimum wage is permanently not a living wage. That's why this is the grossest trick you can ever imagine. Because it's a way to totally neutralize and take off the table the idea of ever raising the minimum wage again, and that means it is permanently a starvation wage. It is permanently not a living wage. It doesn't get any more gross than that. And why are they doing it? Again, they may have convinced themselves I'm some sort of genius compromiser and I'm, I get all the good things done, but in reality, in the real world, they're complete puppets of big business. They're complete puppets of billionaires and lobbyists. That's who they're representing. 
And Joe Manchin can make whatever shitty arguments he wants about, I'm a West Virginia Democrat. Polls in West Virginia show that all the voters, not just the Democrats, but the state of West Virginia, the overwhelming majority of the voters say, we want a $15 an hour minimum wage. Arizona, same thing. Poll just came out after Kirsten Cinema voted it down, did that. Tee hee hee, tee hee hee, fuck poor people, tee hee hee. After she did that, they polled in Arizona. $15 minimum wage is incredibly popular. They're not representing the will of the voters. They view their job as listening to their bosses, their bosses or their donors. It's the lobbyists. It's big business, corporations, billionaires. And here we are. This is the way politics works in the United States of America. And they're the worst example of it, the absolute worst example of it. And by the way, shame on Biden, because whatever they say they want, he's going to give in. He doesn't even think he has the ability to fight them, even though he does. But he's not going to fight them because he kind of agrees with them. He might be ever so slightly to their left, but he'll give them whatever they want. And then serious shame on the progressives because they never do the equal and opposite game that Cinema and Manchin do, which is, I'll take the fucking bill if my priorities aren't in there. Try me. Oh, is it a must-pass bill? Well, then I guess you better sit me at the fucking table and cut a deal then, son. Here's what I'm not bending on. Here are my priorities. They never do that. They never do that because they're scared of the media hating them and they're scared of leadership retaliating against them. And so they go on Twitter and they virtue signal and they tweet and they never get anything done ever. And these are the ghouls that really run politics. These are the people really in control. It's either the Republicans who just, their whole existence is like, let me serve big business and also be culturally and socially backward. And the Democrats' job is, let me be better on social issues and more modern and enlightened, but still be holding to corporate interests on economic issues. And here we are. I really they're really rubbing the corruption in everybody's faces, even though they've probably convinced themselves this isn't corruption and this is just the way Washington works. This is beyond shameful. Okay. Guys, quick break time. When we come back, oh, God, we're going to talk about Matthew McConaughey. We're going to talk about Matthew McConaughey. We got that and much more. Stay right there.
We all back, motherfucker. All right. Let's keep this. Let's keep this train going here. Let's talk about <clears throat> Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> I take no pleasure in reporting this to you, but there's a new poll on the Texas governor race. Um, they put the current governor, Greg Abbott, up against Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. And uh, here are the results. Matthew McConaughey gets 45%. Greg Abbott gets 33%. Someone else gets 22%. And this was a poll done by the Dallas Morning News. So, I mean, this is, um, given that the margin of error is only 2.9%, I mean, sort of a big deal, right? Now, Listen, I actually don't know if McConaughey considers himself a Democrat. So why they would do this race like this, I don't know. Um, I feel like he might be a Republican. I mean, maybe like a moderate one or whatever, but maybe he's a Republican. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's a Democrat. I I genuinely don't know. But uh, I saw some stuff trending on Twitter about, like, some people were saying, we don't want him. We want Beto O'Rourke. You mean the guy who was launched his presidential campaign, was viewed as a favorite by the media, which perpetually sucked him off, and then after like three and a half days, he plummeted into complete and utter irrelevance? That guy? I'm just born to do it, man. He's like posing on the cover of GQ or some shit. I'm a very serious person with very serious things. I'm not a hollow, empty man who's trying to fill the void in my life by becoming popular and important and powerful. That's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I have a well-known hatred for Bet on My Stork. Um, namely because he, when he started running, he did the whole, like, I don't even take corporate PAC money, and I'm for Medicare for all. And then as soon as he got a little bit of prominence and the media started sucking him off, he was like, did I say Medicare for when I said Medicare for all, what I meant was the thing that has to not be that, but what I'm going to say is that even though new phone, who this? I just, I, I'm, I'm so sick of those sorts of politicians. I have, I can't stand them. But uh, yeah, Matthew McConaughey, I have a feeling I won't be able to stand him either. But the point of this story is to say, this is where we're at now, where celebrity is just a massive benefit. Like if you're a celebrity, the whole point of being a celebrity is like, you're known and a lot of people like you. Granted, a lot of people don't like you too, but you, you start with a built-in lead when it comes to name recognition and people who like you. And so not many people know Dickie McGee's acts about Matthew McConaughey's politics, but they're still like, yeah, him for governor. That's a little depressing to me. I mean, granted... You could probably get, a, you know, a stack of used diapers that would do a better job than Greg Abbott. But, you know, it's still, I, I want more from our politics. And I don't, it doesn't look like we're getting it. People want The Rock for president. Nobody knows what he really believes about stuff. And people want Matthew McConaughey for Texas governor. Nobody really knows what he believes about stuff. Or not much, you know. So it's not, policy is not coming first here. People are just going by, I know him. And he was in that thing I liked. 
He should be emperor of the planet. I mean, that's sort of where we're at, and that makes me sad. It does. It makes me sad. So, anyway, I hope Matthew McConaughey doesn't suck, because there's a decent chance he'll be the next Texas governor. Okay, next. Come on. Why isn't this thing working? Got it. One of the... uh terrible, terrible side effects of the Trump era is that the media loves rehabilitating anybody who says even the slightest thing against Trump. They can be the worst person in the world with the worst record in the world, miserable across the board. But if they're like, I slightly disagree with that ban, the media is like, oh, oh, I just came myself. Oh, yes. And that's where we're at. So, um, Let me show you a perfect example of this from this weekend. You ran as a compassionate conservative. (laughs) Do you believe there are compassionate conservatives today? Absolutely, I'm one. And I think there are a lot. Uh, The problem is, uh, with an angry society, uh, it's hard to punch through with compassion. Is it an angry society, or is it a certain leaders and people who stoke that anger and fear? I think there's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm a big leadership guy, and, and so therefore I, I think maybe, maybe the latter part of your question is true, that people stoke anger in order to advance their apolitical agenda. Uh, I do believe there is a more, uh, well, my dad spoke of kinder and gentler, uh, and he truly believed it, and I believe in uh, unifier, not divider, and, and, and they, they just can't be empty slogans. You have to believe it in order to be credible. Uh, I think uh, that, yes, it's going to require leadership to help heal, heal wounds. So the rehabilitation job of George W. Bush is complete. I mean, there are polls now that have Democrats nearly 50% or just over 50% liking him. Actually, I don't remember to be fair. I don't know if it was just under 50% or over 50% for Democrats. But that's crazy because this is a guy who left office with like a 22% approval rating in the entire country. So you can find almost anybody who liked the guy. I mean, he was despised for good reason. Illegal and offensive wars, torture program, Guantanamo Bay, total collapse of the economy because of deregulation and tax cuts for the wealthy. It was endless. It was endless, the shit that he did that was bad. And now, in liberal elite circles, like this show with, what's her name, Nora O'Donnell, they're throwing softballs down the center of the plate for him. I mean, look at these questions. One of them wasn't even a question. It was, you ran as a compassionate conservative. I like how he says, I did, and then he gives, like, that evil laugh. He's like, I did. (laughs) Boy, did I bullshit all you fuckers. I did. You ran as a compassionate conservative. See, an actual journalist would follow that up with, but then you killed minimum 200,000 innocent Iraqi civilians and made a torture program. Thoughts? Didn't do that. Just said, you ran as a compassionate conservative. Just said it as if it's like, 
You're a compassionate man, aren't you? You like good things, and you're against bad things. You like happy things. You don't like mean things. You're a good man, Georgie Porzi, aren't you? I'm a good man, Georgie Porzi. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Uh, and then he says, I find this hilarious, with an angry society, it's hard to break through with compassion. So in other words, you know how the politics have changed. From when he ran for office, he had to pretend to be, I'm a compassionate conservative, I'm a nice guy, and that's how he got elected. His point was, well, you know, when George W. Bush ran, or excuse me, when, uh, when Donald Trump ran, you know, he tapped into anger. And it's because the society has become angry. And so, like, it's hard to break through with compassion these days because now society's angry. So that's his way of saying, I'm, I'm a nice guy and my politics are compassionate politics, not like this guy's angry politics. And so it's harder for my type of politics to break through today because he tapped into that kind of anger. Okay, but why, putting aside the fact that he's not compassionate in terms of his policies, he's terrible and evil demon, but why are people angry? Why? Don't get it twisted. There's plenty of anger out there that's illegitimate. Anger at the other, scapegoating immigrants and brown people and black people when really it's the wealthy and the corrupt who are screwing you and the politician. There's some misguided anger, sure. But a lot of the anger in this country is totally legitimate. I am defending the anger. You want to know why? Because I'm angry. I'm angry because the minimum wage is not a living wage, and millions of people are working full time and not making enough money to survive. That makes me angry. It makes me angry that 80% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck, and that was before COVID hit. Imagine what it's like now. I'm angry because at least 30% of the country couldn't make their rent payment or their mortgage payment because of COVID destroying the economy and us not handling it sufficiently. I'm angry. I'm angry because we haven't done an infrastructure deal since the New Deal. So the freaking thing has fallen apart at the seams. I'm angry about that. I'm angry about our endless wars. I'm angry, but you should be angry. The system has left regular people behind. There's no American dream. It's not the harder you work, the further you go. I wish it was that. It is not that. We have a country where tens of millions of people don't have health care. We don't have free college. We have $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. You should be angry. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Or you're phenomenally lucky because you were born into wealth and privilege. And that's exactly what happened with this guy. And so he doesn't see the stuff going on around him. He doesn't care. It doesn't affect him personally. So why would he care? Why should he care? And then, of course, he does a typical Bushism, still maintains his low IQ. He says, I'm a big big leadership guy. You're a big leadership guy. People stoke anger in order to advance their apolitical agenda. It's not apolitical, son. It is very political. But this is the point. He's trying to draw a distance between us good Republicans and the bad Trump ones. Oh, I agree. The Trump ones are so bad, but I'm a good one. Where me and all of my buddies are the good ones. Really? Dick Cheney? Donald Rumsfeld? Paul Wolfowitz? These are the good ones? The ones from your era, which did the tax cuts for the wealthy and the deregulation and the endless wars? You did everything exactly like Trump. But you want credit because you don't tweet mean shit and you don't randomly call Mexicans rapists. You want credit 
for having a filter when he has no filter, even though you guys push for the exact same policies. So it's convenient for him to say, oh, Trump stuff is apolitical. It's ap- I'm political. Democrats are political. Trump is apolitical. Even though I did the exact same shit as him, when I did it, it's political and serious. When he does it, it's apolitical and you should condemn it. I'm a unifier, not a divider. These, are, these aren't just empty slogans. You have to believe it. You unified nothing. Actually, wrong. You unified Wall Street and Raytheon and Boeing and the military-industrial complex. That's who you unified. I'm a big leadership guy. Oh, are you? All right, let's go to the evangelicals. Oh, no, where's that? What have I done? I had a great quote that I needed. Oh, I have it right here. Never mind. No, wait, I don't have it right here. God damn it. I had a great quote that I needed to read for you. It, uh from USA Today, and it talks about the vaccines. Hold on. Let me see if I can pull this up. I'm so mad at myself for for not having this, for not having this excerpt up. I could have sworn I I jotted it down. All right, I can't find it. I guess I'll just have to comment on it and tell you guys what it it said. Anyway, all right, here we go. So there's a concerning trend popping up. Uh, There's people on the right, and there's some people on the left, too, who are, like, really anti-vax. On the left, it it comes from a more understandable sentiment of knowing that Big Pharma is totally corrupt and knowing that uh, there's some evil motherfuckers. But just because they're evil doesn't mean that, like, antibiotics don't work and doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to the doctor or something when your arm breaks. So um, I think it's a misguided sentiment. Um, But here we have an example. There's more right-leaning people who are anti-vax than left-leaning people. It's about double, according to the polls. I think it's 36% of Republicans who said, I'm not going to get the COVID vaccine. Well, here is apparently a famous evangelical pastor who's leaning into this. Church during lockdown. 
While a survey of evangelical leaders finds most would be open to getting the vaccine, Spell is adamantly against it. If you broke your arm or something, would you go to the doctor? Sure, I'd go to the doctor uh, and get it set and wear a cast. So, like, at some level, you trust some doctor? Yes, we do. So, can you just explain where the line is? The line is in this vaccine. Number one, the virus has been a scam from the beginning. It's always been politically motivated for mailing ballots and voter ID. That's what has got a new administration in the White House today. Is the appeal of your sermon that the pandemic is scary, the virus is scary, and so you're telling scared people, well, you don't have to worry about any of that stuff, like come to my church and God will make sure you don't get this virus. Yes, I promoted that. I Why are you giving them false hope? It's not false hope. Why not? What's false is our lying politicians. Several people told us they started coming here after they saw Spell in the news for keeping his church open and liked his message. I was worried about not going to church and going back down to home drugs. The aim for the whole shutdown was the church because we're the radical right. We don't believe in gay marriage. We don't believe in uh, abortion, all that. Are you going to get the vaccine? Uh, no. It's that brought us to this point. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's, there's always going to be some percentage of the population that are, like, out there and kooky or whatever. Um, but I think that number has grown, and I think it's grown because trust in institutions has completely imploded. And I think the trust in institutions imploding is actually sort of correct because the institutions have lied to us repeatedly. And people know that they're being screwed. They're getting shafted by society that doesn't care about them. It's not a meritocracy. Um, we've been lied into wars. We've been, you know, given terrible starvation wages. People don't trust society. They don't think that the way we've structured this thing makes sense. And so now that's reflecting in ways where, where even when we do the right thing, I think, honestly think one of the biggest achievements of the modern era was the creation and now, the, um, and now giving out the vaccine. We've actually done a phenomenal job at that. It's very few countries have, are ahead of us in terms of the percentage of, the country that's vaccinated, especially countries that are our size. Now, we're doing terrible things also like not lifting the patent protections and the intellectual property rights, because if we do that, then you can vaccinate the entire world faster. The pharma companies are fighting tooth and nail to have a genocide and keep the vaccines here um, and not let other companies do generic versions of it. But in terms of what we've done in this country, in the borders, that's one of our biggest achievements is creating the vaccine so quickly and distributing it so quickly. So even when we, now when we even do something right, people are like, I don't believe it. I don't trust it. I don't like it. And again, to some extent you blame the institutions, but to some extent you do have to blame the individual, you know, because there's always going to be kooks. There's always going to be cranks. And um, 
it's unfortunate because you'd hope that people would at least somewhat immerse themselves in the literature on it to figure out what the real deal is, and they haven't, you know? Uh, so just so you know, I, I researched this quite a bit because I got the vaccine. I actually ended up getting the Johnson & Johnson, which was the one-shot one, um, and then the FDA paused it. They're going to bring it back, but they paused it because of blood clots in six women uh, who are anywhere from 18 to 48 years old. And um, I, research, I research a lot because I want to make sure whatever I'm putting in my body is legit. And, yes, the most important fact to me is this. In the, the, every single trial of every single vaccine that's out there, that's Pfizer, Moderna, Sinovac, um, Johnson & Johnson, and others, every single one, nobody who has gotten the vaccine has been hospitalized or has died from COVID. So my vaccine, they said, was 66% effective. Others were 90 to 95% effective. But they still approved the Johnson & Johnson. Why? Because it's 66% effective against COVID symptoms. So you could still get COVID, but it'll be like having a cold. And it, you won't have extreme symptoms, severe symptoms. You won't be hospitalized and you won't die. Nobody who's taken the vaccine has been hospitalized or died. It fucking works. Okay? It works. Um, and even the thing with the blood clots, there have been about 7 million vaccines, Johnson & Johnson vaccines that have been given out. Six people got it. So it's a very rare reaction. They're trying to figure out why it is. It might be a mix of, like, some medication with the vaccine. Um, they don't know. They're looking into it. But it's so rare, literally one in a million, that people are like, we're going to bring it back because it's – even if it did do the thing people are afraid it does, you'd still be better off taking it because the chances of getting COVID and then dying are way higher. We just passed 3 million deaths worldwide with COVID in this country. Or not in this country, excuse me, in the world. 3 million COVID deaths. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. All right, so let's go through some of the things they said. He said, I'd rather die free than live on my knees. By the way, I don't want to be too harsh here, and I bite my tongue even from saying this, but I'm not going to. I'll just say it real quick. Go back and watch that clip again. I think that pastor's hiding stuff, if you know what I'm saying. Anyway, uh, then he says um, he'd be going against his convictions if he got it. But what convictions, though? I don't like what. What's the conviction? All modern medicine is bad. Well, he said he'd get help if he broke his arm. So why? Why this? Why this? Well, he said the virus has been a scam from the beginning. The whole point was the mail-in ballots to get Biden elected. I mean, imagine if that was true. Obviously, it's obviously not. But imagine that was true. COVID was created as a scam simply to get Biden elected, even though we have 3 million bodies of dead people. And we've, like, shut down the global economy. We did that for an extended period of time. That is not what the billionaires and the money of interest and the lobbyists and those people want, but we did it. So the giant conspiracy idea to get Biden elected is silly. We had to freeze Democratic primaries because of that shit. There were questions about doing that. I mean... It's amazing to me that this guy believes that. And then when they talked to the, the Christians, the evangelical Christians, one guy was like, we're the radical right. We don't believe in gay marriage and abortion. Okay, I don't know what that has to do with the vaccine, but thank you. Um, one person says, I think it's Bill Gates trying to kill us all. I'm no fan of big Bill Gates. In fact, I despise Bill Gates, but I don't think that's accurate. Um, and then my favorite one was the person who said, I know it works medically, 
but I don't like the idea of putting something in my body. You eat food, <laughs> and you've used other medicines, I'm sure, Tylenol, Pepto-Bismol, whatever it might be. I know it works medically, but isn't that where the sentence should stop? I know it works medically. I'm going to get it. No, he didn't do it. And then I always love the, the cognitive dissonance of the Trump people. She's like, I love Trump. She probably thinks she's right about everything politically, but you keep your vaccine. I'm not getting it. It's so funny to me. How do you have that cognitive dissonance where you really think the guy's like a god and you think he's right about everything and you love him, but he got this thing wrong, you think? He took it because it works, as did Biden and as did many others. I took it because it works. So we got to get to, what, at least 70% or 80% or something for herd immunity? So you got to hope that we get to that percentage. We'll see. All right, let me give you the COVID update real quick. Going to give you a COVID update, bitch. So we just passed a very devastating COVID number, but we also passed a positive one. So let me break this down for you. This is in the Los Angeles Times. Almost 130 million people, 18 or older, have received at least one dose of a vaccine, or 50.4% of the total adult population. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported almost 84 million adults or about 32.5% of the population, have been fully vaccinated. The U.S. cleared the 50% mark just a day after the reported global death toll from the coronavirus topped 3 million. According to totals compiled by John Hopkins University, though the actual numbers believed to be significantly higher. The country's vaccination rate at 61.6 doses administered per 100 people currently falls behind Israel, which leads among countries with at least 5 million people with a rate of 1192 The U.S. also trails the United Arab Emirates, Chile, and the United Kingdom, which is vaccinating at a rate of 62 doses per 100 people, according to Our World in Data, an online research site. So we're a significantly bigger country than any of those countries. And the fact that we're doing as well as we are really is, I think, one of the biggest successes of modern society for decades. So it's rare that I give credit, but this is one of those areas where credit has been earned. The creation of the vaccine and the distribution of the vaccine has now become a giant success. And um, it's one of the few bright spots in an otherwise terrible time when it comes to the pandemic and when it comes to the economy. I mean, 3 million people dead. And again, they say the real number is probably way higher because these things always lag. Um, 3 million people officially dead from COVID around the world. That's a terrible number. What a terrible milestone. But over 50% of the U.S. population now had at least one dose of a vaccine. That's gigantic. And also, I should be clear, if you get one dose of the Pfizer or the Moderna, you already get a decent amount of protection. You already get a decent amount. So that's, um, I think we have to get to 70 or 80% or so before we have herd immunity, and so you just hope we get there as soon as possible. But, you know, I have to say, most of the time you get a lot of doom and gloom on this show because I just go wherever I think the news and the facts takes me. But this is an issue where, this is an area where, We far surpassed my expectations, that's for sure. We were doing poor with the vaccine rollout for a while. We're doing really well now. I mean, over half the country is vaccinated, or or half of the adults, I should say, have gotten at least one shot. That's huge. So let's get that 70% number. Let's get that 80% number. And by the way, there's another article I saw. I don't have the specific numbers in front of me. But um, 
the COVID vaccines are 100% effective against hospitalization and death from COVID, 100%. But even if you broaden the scope out further of people who get COVID in the sense that they have some symptoms, even if it's just like a cold, um, the numbers are incredibly tiny of people who've had it, who have, who have had the vaccine. That's a great sign. And once you start seeing the effects of herd immunity, it's going to be great. The only downside is we might have to start getting, I mean, there was apparently a report on this about Pfizer, that we have to, you have to get another shot. And you might have to get it yearly like the flu, like the flu shot. Which is a shame, but, um, you know, it is what it is. And this thing is a scourge, and it's unlike anything that we've seen in the modern era, that's for sure. I mean, you have to go to the 19-teens before you saw a pandemic this terrible and this widespread. So anyway, that's some good news, man. The 3 million is terrible and heartbreaking, and it's even worse than that. But 50.4% uh, of the total adult population having at least one vaccine definitely surpassed my expectations. Okay. Time for me to brag, y'all. Time for me to brag. Here we go. Time for me to do a segment, bragging. Rachel C. Abrams says the following. This is uh, from the New York Times. New, staffers at One America News, the misinformation peddling outlet favored by Trump, don't think their own stories are true and are cheering on lawsuits against the owners. One producer regarding the Capitol riot, quote, that's what happens when people listen to us. Well, hot damn, I called this one. Now, I didn't get all of the details right because I think I said it was Newsmax and it was with Greg Kelly. But in the segment on the Newsmax one, I think I said, I threw One American News in there also. And I said, I really don't think they believe what they're saying. And the reason why I think this is noteworthy is because my general instinct is the opposite. So in other words, I tend to take people at their word when they make arguments about their beliefs. So somebody tells me what they believe. I would need a lot of evidence, proof even, for me to say, I think you're lying. I don't think you actually believe that. I think you're just saying it even though you believe something else. I think the default assumptions, Occam's razor, is that generally speaking, take people at their word. So in other words, I don't malign motives unless there's really solid evidence and reason to do it. But I had this hunch when it came to Newsmax, Greg Kelly, and One America News Network because they were saying things that were so absurd and so over the top and so insane and pushing stop the steal and pushing fraudulent elections and, at election. And their argument was so weak. Their arguments were so weak that I was like, they don't, they don't fucking believe what they're They don't believe it. They don't believe it. I struggle to think that they believe it. These are all polished people and finely pressed suits and nice dresses and you know, they look like professionals and they all probably went to elite schools and they're out there peddling this nonsense. They saw the numbers. They saw there were like over 60 lawsuits and Trump's team lost nearly every single one of them. They know. They knew it wasn't real. They knew Biden won the election. They knew it was fair. They knew. They knew. But they went all in with it. And so I had a hunch because it was just too, it's one of those conspiracies. Some conspiracies seem plausible. Some conspiracies are true, if we're being honest here. 
But some conspiracies are untrue but sound plausible. And then there's conspiracies that are just like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And that was the Stop the Steal shit. And so I had this hunch that people on Newsmax and One American News Networks don't believe their shit. They're just saying it because they found a lane. The lane is we're going to go to the right of Fox News. But they put all their eggs in that basket. And then when it was proven that, you know, Trump wasn't going to get back in office, which is what a lot of QAnon people were saying, where'd the audience go? They went, all right, I guess I'll go back to Fox News because at least they told me the truth about that. So it was temporary. It was a shot of adrenaline. It went away quickly. But these people know behind the scenes they're talking to each other like, man, can't believe anybody believes the shit we say. Exactly. I told you. I don't know how I knew, but I had a hunch because it was just such extreme bullshit that it seemed like they didn't even really believe it. And now we know they don't believe it. All right, next. Talk about Bill Crystal, bitch. Bill Crystal, bitch. Bill Crystal, bitch. Good Lord, why am I talking about Bill Crystal, neocon warmonger, war criminal who should be super irrelevant, but mainstream media has rehabilitated his image because he says, I don't like Trump, even though I agree with him on all the policies. So uh, here's what I just saw the other night. As I said to Brian Williams on the 11th hour, his show, the 2024 GOP nomination is a fight between Donald Trump and Liz Cheney. It's going to be lit. The GOP nomination fight between Donald Trump and Liz Cheney is going to be lit. First things first, never say lit again. You said lit? What are you, like 70 years old? And you said lit. You said lit. You said lit. I roll my eyes when like a 20-year-old says lit. Son, you're damn near 70, and you said lit. What are you doing? How do you do, fellow kids? How do you do, fellow kids? I'm hip. I'm cool. I'm with it. Lit. You've never said lit in your life, and now you say lit? You're a war criminal. <laughs> You're a war criminal, son. Go outside. Go sit outside. Nobody want, needs to hear from you or wants to hear from you. And the idea that that fight would go the way he wants it to go, which is he prefers Liz Cheney, because Liz Cheney is a warmonger and a war criminal, and she's part of the establishment wing of the party. But the only don't get it twisted. They agree with Trump on all the policies. The only thing they disagree with him on is his mean tweets, is his mean tweets, and his lack of a filter. And every now and then, he says something like, we should get out of the wars, even though I'm going to keep us in the wars. And they think, oh, he actually wants us out of the wars. Now I hate them, because they're dumbasses. And they're totally corrupt and, and owned by the military-industrial complex, Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, Lockheed Martin, so on and so forth. A grown-ass man is saying lit. And a grown-ass man thinks that Trump versus Liz Cheney is going to be a close fight or maybe even Liz will win. In that fight, I kid you not, I kid you not, listen to me, listen to me. In that fight, Donald Trump would win at the very least. I'm going to be super conservative with these numbers. At the very least, 80% to 20% if it was Trump versus Liz Cheney, 80-20. And this idiot... Oh, yeah, you got your finger on the pulse of the country, dick. That's why you 
endlessly pushed for illegal and offensive wars and pretended like they were popular, and all your predictions turned out to be not true. You're legendary in how wrong you've been about everything. And now, zero humility, and he says this as if this is like some sort of insight or some intelligent point. Y'all, Liz Cheney's really going to take it to old Donnie. He, during the 2016 Republican primary, he had this bit when he thought he was nailing it, where he would say, oh, after this debate, Trump's going to go down in the polls. We've hit peak Trump, is what he would say. And then every time he would say that, Trump would go up in the polls. And obviously, you know what happened. Trump ended up curb-stopping everybody in the Republican race and won the presidency. Idiot thought, like, Jeb Bush is going to be a force or some other moron who has zero appeal, like Lindsey Graham or some shit. Got, like, negative 80% in the race. I mean, the media is, mainstream media is a rare industry where seemingly everybody fails up. If you do a good job, you're going to get fired. If you do a good job, they're going to fire you. If you talk about issues that really matter in an intelligent way, talk about policies, hold the powerful accountable, you're going to get fired. You're going to get fired. If you do a good job, you're kicked to the curb. If you are objectively wrong about everything you've ever said in your life, they'll promote you, and they'll treat you like a hero. And that's exactly what they do with Bill Crystal. These are the takes he goes on TV every day and gives these fucking takes. He gives these takes. This takes. Donald Trump versus Liz Cheney is going to be lit. Hey, what's the haps, guys? What's poppin'? Did you see the new Da Baby song? Go fuck yourself with a cactus, you ancient war criminal who's never been right about anything. It's not going to be lit. It's not even going to be a race. It would be at least 80-20 Trump, and you'd be sitting there again, wrong, again, and you still wouldn't correct yourself, and you'd still continue to get stuff wrong going into the future. Okay. All right, let me do my final story of the day, bitch. All right, let me let me set this up for y'all. Kirsten Cinema has made quite a name for herself um, by being terrible. She's one of the most corporate of the corporate Democrats, one of the most right-wing of the Democrats, and now she takes pride in it. She started out by being some sort of DSA member. She was left, and then she totally changed and went right and sold out. And, you know, her biggest moment was when she uh, voted down the $15 minimum wage and did a little cutesy curtsy, like... Is that what's called a curtsy? I don't know. <laughs> Fuck the poor. <laughs> and uh, she takes pride in being this centrist goon who says, hey, what's the correct position and what's the total corporate sellout position? And I'm going to split the difference. So, you know, Republicans say, let's not have a minimum wage or let's keep the minimum wage at $7.25. And Democrats say, let's do $15. I'm going to say maybe 11 Let's do 11 Let's do 11 which, and then tie it to inflation or median wage growth, which means it'll permanently not be a living wage. So I did the bidding of the corporations while pretending I'm for the people. That's Kirsten Cinema. Well, 
look at what we just got here. So Melanie Zanona tweets, Kirsten Cinema, the Senate's most colorful member, posts a pic of herself on Instagram rocking a fuck off ring and sipping what looks like sangria. So this, I love this picture for so many reasons. This says everything about Kirsten Cinema. So let, let, me, let me dissect this for you. Kirsten Cinema, she's got the colorful hat, and she's got the colorful glasses because I'm stylish and I'm fashionable. Okay, people? She's got the earrings, the very, like, you know, gaudy, outgoing, bright, bold earrings. And she's sipping an alcoholic drink, sangria, because I'm cool, I'm hip, I'm with it, I drink. What do you think, kids out there? If you're 20 years old, 21 years old, 25 or whatever, you go out and party. I like to party. I'm a partier. I'm fun. I'm cool. I'm like the cool aunt. You know what I'm saying? So the aesthetic she's giving off is like, me, bro, I'm just a cool person. I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider. I'm not like these stuck-up, old-school, ancient, dusty-ass politicians in Washington, D.C. I'm hip. I'm with it. That's what I am. And then the ring, if you zoom in on that, you can see, it says, fuck off. Because, you know, she wants to make sure she puts the exclamation point on the notion like, I'm edgy. I'm counterculture. So Kirsten Cinema represents the worst of Washington, D.C., because she's the first one to hide behind the new age jargon about like my trauma. I'm so traumatized by X, Y, and Z. She's the first to hide behind identity politics, invoke whatever it is, misogyny, sexism, racism, transphobia, whatever. She'll say all the buzzwords and, and the cool kid stuff, but then she votes like Joe Manchin across the board. So she's, the most right-wing Democrat, the most corporate and corrupt Democrat, but she gives the aesthetic of change and outsiderism. And that's why I despise her with a burning passion. She loves the attention. She loves, you know, she's a deep delusional narcissist. Um, And she cloaks her backwards, corporate, corrupt, reactionary politics in this veneer of cool kid edginess, and I'm the new generation. I represent change. Step aside, old people. The young ones are coming in to vote exactly like you guys just voted, but do it while dressing in a gregarious way and saying things like trauma and using pronouns like G and shit. Fuck off. Fuck all the way off. Because this is, the trick is, I can't outlet the left on economic policy, on domestic policy, on foreign policy. I can't outlet the left on any of those things. So what I'll do is give the show, give the kabuki theater, give the veneer of change on social issues and use that as an argument that I outlet the other lefties. Why? Look at my hat. Look at my glasses. Look at my fuck offering. I'm so edgy that I curse. Anyway, the fuck off is actually for the wait staff at this restaurant and for working people. Because, tee-hee-hee, no $15 minimum wage for you. Tee-hee-hee. Story we covered before, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema got speaking gigs at National Restaurant Association gathering behind closed doors with no press. Um, and they got that immediately after they voted down the $15 minimum wage. They're doing a panel with George W. Bush and Dana Perino. And it's all about bipartisan solutions. And the whole point of it is to meet the lobbyists, meet the corrupt people, take more money for their next campaign, uh, campaigns, respective campaigns, and... Uh, 
try to get reelected. Biggest sellout around while pretending she's bold and she's the future of the party and she is the worst of the worst. All right, guys. I am done with the show. I'm done with the show. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of the day. Peace.